I found myself in there. At first I thought it was no big deal. I'll get out of this. It wasn't until I ended up in solitary confinement that I realised I wasn't going to get out of this. In fact, I figured they were going to kill me. I had never felt so hopeless and alone before and decided that if they were going to kill me anyway, I'll just do it myself. I took my T-shirt off, I made a noose and then remembered the heaven-hell issue and decided that if I was going to kill myself, I should make sure I ended up in heaven. I wasn't sure how to do that but figured that I should pray. I wasn't sure how to do that either. So I looked up and just said, God, if you're real, and then for the first time in my life, I began to cry and ended up on my knees. I cried and cried and said, God, if you're real, send someone who cares about me to see me. I fell asleep like that. At 6.30 the next morning, a guard woke me up. I woke up cursing him in my usual response. And he said, get up, you've got a visitor. I said, I can't have a visitor. No one knows I'm here. He took me to the visitor area and I saw my brother. I thought, my mum must have seen this on the news and sent my brother to see me. Because I knew my brother wouldn't just come. We don't even like each other. We get along like cats and dogs. And when I got to him, he said, Andrew, no matter what happens or how long it takes, I'm going to be here with you. I told him to bring me a Bible. I started in Genesis when I got it and thought, these are a lot of nice stories, but I got nothing out of it. Someone else came to visit me who was a Christian And I told him I was reading the Bible, but didn't get much out of it. And he told me to read the New Testament. I didn't even know what that was, and I told him I didn't have one. He had to explain to me that it was part of the Bible. And he told me to start reading the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read through the New Testament a couple of times, but didn't really notice any change. I just didn't get it. Just before my court date, I remember reading Mark 11, 23 to 24, where it says that if you have enough faith, you can say to this mountain, be removed and God will do it. So I said, God, if you're real and if this is true, I want you to free me. And if you do, I'll serve you every day for the rest of my life. I went to my court hearing and they convicted me gave me the death penalty. When I got back to my cell, I said, God, I asked you to set me free, not kill me. God spoke to me and said, Andrew, I have set you free from the inside out. I've given you life. And from that moment on, I haven't stopped worshipping him. I had never sung before, Never led worship until Jesus set me free. That's Andrew Chan in his own words. 
He's been on death row for almost 10 years. And by all accounts, he and his fellow prisoner, Myron Sukumaran, have come to love and follow Jesus. And they're helping other prisoners reform their lives as well in introducing others to Jesus. And this very week, the Indonesian government has been taking steps to enact the punishment that the court gave. Why am I telling you this? Well, firstly, if you're encouraged to hear what God can do in the life of someone like Andrew Chan, hopefully it demonstrates to you what God can do in any life. God can take a hardened criminal, turn him around. Secondly, regardless of where they end up, in terms of whether they're pardoned or not, whether they are given life sentence instead of death, it's obvious to me that God has worked to reshape them. The most horrible of circumstances has absolutely crushed them, and yet God has seen fit to reshape them into something that he can use. Thirdly, if you think that Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran deserve their punishment or don't deserve their punishment, either way, we look at Joseph and say, Joseph didn't deserve his punishment. It's clear. Andrew and Myron took a risk. They went smuggling drugs despite the possible consequences. Joseph, on the other hand, is in jail because he refused to give in to the sexual advances of his boss's wife. And it's apparent that Joseph seems to have received a life sentence because despite the good that he's doing in jail, helping other prisoners to reform, Joseph is still in jail and he doesn't seem to have any hope of release. The one hope that he had, wording up the cupbearer who got out, and had the ear of the pharaoh, seems to have failed. It's now been two years since the cupbearer got out. The cupbearer sees pharaoh every day. And I'm pretty sure by now Joseph is losing hope, thinking probably he'll be in jail for the rest of his life. But then one fateful night, pharaoh has two dreams. Yep, more dreams. We've had two dreams of Joseph, two dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, and now two dreams of Pharaoh. And again, I'm going to read to you from chapter 41 of Genesis. And if you have a hard time following along, it's because I'm skipping some verses. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, and in my words, he has a dream of cows. There are seven fat cows grazing, and seven skinny cows come up out of the river, and they eat the seven fat cows, but the seven skinny cows are still skinny. He wakes up a bit troubled. Then verse 5, he fell asleep again, and he had a second dream. And then again, this is my words, he has a dream about some heads of grain, healthy, looking good, growing on a single stalk, and then 
seven heads of withered, parched-looking grain. Eat. Eat the seven healthy heads of grain. But they're still withered and parched and looking poor. And in the morning his mind was troubled. And so he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then, then, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Ooh, oops. Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Not kidding. And he recounts to Pharaoh the time that he had a dream in prison and that Joseph had interpreted his dream. Verse 14, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So Pharaoh recounts his dreams to Joseph and Joseph says, verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And so Joseph goes on to say the dreams mean seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And this needs to be the plan. Don't let the famine, don't let the famine catch you out. Build up your stores in the years of plenty. Verse 33, and now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man. Put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Verse 38, so Pharaoh asks them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's been promoted back to that second in charge position. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And he said to him, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Paniah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, no relation to Potiphar, priest of On to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. 30. It's not very old these days. Some people haven't left home by the time they're 30. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. Verse 50. Before the year of, years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Verse 55, when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. I wonder if Joseph, when he walked into that chamber to see Pharaoh, 
I wonder if the cupbearer and he sort of made eyes at each other. And yes, there's a message for you. Watch this. Ready? Read it. Read it for yourself. You can only hear, when you're listening to me, you'll only hear me sharing what I've learned out of this. Read it for yourself. It's fantastic reading. Better than that, it's true. So I wonder if Joseph walks into the Pharaoh's chamber and the two of them lock eyes, the cupbearer and Joseph, and Joseph sort of gestures, seriously, two years? And the cupbearer goes, sorry. My bad. But instead of being angry or bitter about his circumstances, Joseph seems to continue to display characteristics of a life of godly resolve. And when we're talking about a life of resolve, we're not just talking about people who are determined. There's plenty of those people around. But we're talking about a life of godly resolve. And last week you'll remember that a life of resolve practices contentment, not envy. Envy, that thing that causes you not just to want something, but really to hate the people who have it and to resent them because they've got something that you want. And it ends up causing us to harm others. And then we talked about that a life of resolve puts and leaves God in charge. We allow God the sovereign position that he has to steer the circumstances of our life. And as we look at this Little section, I'm not gonna, we're not covering nearly as much time this week, uh, as we did last week. We're just gonna look at this one experience where Joseph gets hauled out of the dungeon and promoted to Prime Minister of Egypt. Maybe even, or maybe even had a portfolio, like, you know, Minister for Agriculture. Something like that. And as we look at these, this circumstance, this experience that Joseph had, it confirms to us a few more characteristics of a life of godly resolve. First of all, a life of resolve does not carry a grudge. A life of resolve does not carry a grudge. Why do I say that? Well, here's the thing. If you got promoted to a position of a significant power and you really had a beef with someone, this is your big chance. This is your moment. Beforehand, you wished you could have got at them. Now you can. And boy, if Joseph wanted to, he could have. He is now second only to Pharaoh. You know, you, we heard why, why did the cupbearer and the baker get thrown into jail? They offended the Pharaoh. Maybe, maybe the bread was too crusty. Maybe it wasn't crusty enough. I don't know. Maybe the juice was a bit off. Whatever it was, they offended the Pharaoh and boom, they're in jail. Joseph is now in that same position. He could, if he wanted to, get back at the cupbearer. And the cupbearer, man, has he let Joseph down. Big time. Two years since he said, hey, by the way, mention me. I need clemency from the Pharaoh. No, he forgot. Until that moment where he's like, oh yeah, dreams, interpreting dreams. It rings a bell somewhere. Man. This guy's not reliable. But instead of being angry or bitter, Joseph busies himself with what God has put in front of him to do. And can I tell you this, as I have to remind myself often, of all the tasks or the roles that God might ask me to do, getting even is never, never going to be on that list. Never, ever. 
And we see that all the way through the Bible. Here's a couple of examples. Romans 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Judgment is God's job, not ours. Judgment is God's job. Proverbs 20, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. You could just stop there, couldn't you? (laughs) But it says, wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. Again, judgment is God's job, not ours. Not only does Joseph leave the cupbearer alone, he doesn't go after Potiphar. He doesn't go after Potiphar's wife. He leaves them be. Doesn't seek compensation. There's no court action. There's no defamation suit. And look at this. Look at the names that he gives his children as an indication of where his heart is at. Manasseh. Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew word for forget. God has helped me to forget. What does he say? God has helped me to forget. I can't see it there. But he says, forget my family and forget, I think, forget my troubles. Doesn't mean he's not remembering. Doesn't mean he's like, oh yeah, I think something bad happened to me once, but I can't remember it. No. He's, he's choosing not to bring it up and dwell on it. He's choosing not to dwell on the things of the past. And then the name he gives his second son, Ephraim. Fruitful. Sounds like the Hebrew word for fruitful. He remembers what has happened to him. He says, God's allowed me to be fruitful in the land of my suffering. He knows that he has suffered big time, but he's acknowledging that God has allowed him to bear fruit in the very place where he has suffered so much. That kind of reminds me of Andrew Chan. Deserving or not, God has allowed him to bear fruit where he is. What an act of grace. I know some of you have suffered terrible, terrible wrongs in your lives. And I know some of you have allowed God to help you forget those things, to let them go, to not hold on to the hurt and to hold on to the desire that you have to right the wrong. I know other people in my circles, at least, who have suffered wrong, and I say this with gentleness, they're a little bit like Siri. You know who Siri is? Siri's the little voice in here, in my iPad. I can talk to Siri, and Siri talks back to me. But Siri is actually just listening for key words and responds accordingly. And some of the people in my circles are like that. If I say key words, oh, out it all comes. And the hurt is retold. And the injustice is recounted. And the bitterness surfaces once again. And the harm in that person goes a little bit deeper than it did before. And the resentment grows. There are scientific studies that say that bitterness is not just bad for your soul. It's actually bad for your body. It's actually bad for your body. These studies say that in the short term, blaming someone else uh, can be good, uh, preserves your self-esteem and your ego because you get to sort of lay it on someone else and say, it wasn't me, it was their fault. But in the long term, the study says, holding on 
to blame and resentment and bitterness actually causes your heart trouble, causes you to have bad blood pressure. It can cause depression. It can actually compromise your brain function. Can you believe that? Our soul and our bodies are so intertwined that what we do in our heart with our emotions and our will affects our actual physical well-being. That's not an accident. God has designed us this way. The physical world and the spiritual world are not disconnected. I know some hurts are really hard to get over and I don't pretend to be an expert in dealing with big hurt. But can I tell you, I know this much. It is not God's desire for us to carry bitterness. It is not God's desire for us to carry bitterness. God calls us to let his love come in so that his love, not your love, his love can flow out. Ephesians 4 says, Get rid of bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every other form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What's the measure of forgiveness for us who choose to follow Jesus? Jesus' example, that's the measure. If Christ could forgive those who betrayed him, who killed him, an innocent man, That is the standard we're called to. But, again, we're not called to that ourselves. If you killed me or one of my kids, I'd find it really hard to forgive you. But God calls us to let God's love in so that his love can flow out. Bearing a grudge is actually the opposite of what God wants for you and I. It is the opposite of the gospel. It does not reflect Christ. It reflects pride and fear and hatred. In fact, when I bear a judge, when I bear a judge, when I bear a grudge, what I'm actually doing is reserving my right to get back at you. I'm keeping score and I'm reserving the right to remind you that your score is very bad when it comes to you and I. I'm actually elevating myself a little bit and popping you down there. And I'm saying, just be remembering what you've done to me. And don't ever forget it because I'm a little bit holier and you are not. That is not God's way. So how can you and I possibly avoid that when other people have done some terrible, terrible things to us? Stuff that seems unforgivable. Well, we are going to get to that in a second. And I hope it becomes clear. Second thing that I observe in this experience of Joseph is that a life of resolve invokes God's power, not ours. Now, I've used a pretty fancy word there, invoke. I'm going to explain to you what that means. Invoke means to call on someone or something for assistance, support or inspiration. To call on someone or something for assistance, support or inspiration. As a lawyer, we use this term a little bit. Oh, I think we've invoked Section 17 of the blah, blah, blah legislation. I know most of you are just looking at me glazed and yeah, whatever. Joseph fronts up to the Pharaoh, and this is his big chance. He had a chance once before to get himself out of trouble. He worded up the cupbearer, hey, all you have to do is tell the Pharaoh my story and I'm sure he'll let me go. 
I'm sure he'll give me a pardon. It'll be obvious that I'm not the kind of guy who would have done what I was accused of and he'll let me out. And now he's in, the Pharaoh, in front of Pharaoh thinking, okay, the cupbearer didn't come good, but now here's my chance. Here's my chance to show myself to be a sensible, capable guy who's obvious, obviously not the kind of guy who deserves to be in prison. Maybe, it's, maybe I'm the kind of guy that, Joseph would like, that Pharaoh would like to have around the palace. Here's my, here's, if I was in Joseph's shoes, here's the angle I'd take. If I can convince Pharaoh that I've got some special powers, he'll probably want to keep me. Joseph is a slave. Someone's got to own him. May as well be owned by the top dog. And if Joseph had been listening to humanistic motivational speakers on his iPod in his cell every night, they would have been telling him things like this. You can do it. Deep within you, there's an inner strength capable of amazing things. Believe in yourself. If you genuinely want something, don't wait for it. Go get it. Be impatient. I'm literally quoting real, real things here. I've read these quotes. Stop focusing on the size of your problem and start focusing on the size of you. And so this is Joseph's big moment to impress. And listen to how he responds to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. I've got a dream to tell you. And Joseph says, stop. I can't do it. God can. Joseph, can you interpret dreams? Uh, no. No, I can't. I wonder if Pharaoh's face maybe fell a little bit then. He looked at his cupbearer and said, isn't that what you told me? He says, no, I can't do it. It's God who can do it. He stakes his whole future on God's ability, not on his own. He invokes God's power. He calls on God's power for assistance and support. And guys, can I tell you, that right there is the very essence of the good news about Jesus. Right there, I can't do it, God can. That's it. God loves us. He has a plan for us, but we run away from God because of our sin. Our sin has got to be dealt with. We are on death row because of our sin. We are not in a position to save ourselves. And Joseph said exactly what we need to say. I can't do it. God can. Here's the good news. God did. God did do it. Jesus was the one who took my place and your place on death row. Here's the other thing. If someone did that for someone like Andrew Chan or Myron Sukumaran, do you think that they would voluntarily want to stay on death row? Do you think they would stay in the line for the execution? I don't think so. I don't think so. We need to decide whether we will accept Jesus' sacrifice. If Jesus took your place on death row, then you can hop out of the line. We actually can't save ourselves. Only God can. And it means we still can't save ourselves. But sometimes I think we, we do this thing. We pray a prayer and we thank God for saving us and then we go about trying to save ourselves again or to justify why God would have saved us. 
We feel much better about our salvation if my life is in good shape and we feel much worse if my life is in bad shape. We can't save ourselves, not before, and we can't save ourselves after. We can't save ourselves now with holy words, fancy prayers, nice singing, good works, generous giving, righteous living, Bible reading, study leading, sitting on boards, whatever it is. We can't save ourselves and we need to stop trying. None of those things will save us. We can't, but God can. And here's the challenge that I've faced. If I believe that I can't, but God can, not only with my eternal salvation, but everything in life, if I believe that I can't do it myself, but God can, then I need to start acting that way. I need to start acting as if I believe that. And I know I don't do that enough. I confessed to my small group the other week, I pray prayers that sort of don't need an answer or that the answers are a little bit fluffy. And I say things like, I pray that I'll have a good day. And all I have to do is sort of think of something that was good today and boom, my prayer's been answered. Great. Or I pray prayers that sort of like, dear God, I pray that you'll be with me today. God's already said he's going to be with me. My prayer was answered in advance. It's not a prayer of faith. It's just a prayer of, it's for the sake of praying. And the question is, for me at least, am I bold enough Am I bold enough to put in front of God something that will only happen if God shows up and displays his power? Am I willing to invoke God's power instead of my own? Am I brave enough to stake my reputation, my future on God's abilities? Can I tell you, I do that so rarely. It's almost embarrassing. I can only recount really one time when I've just really laid it out there and staked everything on the prayer and the outcome of that prayer. That was when there was a little girl <laughs> found in the bottom of the swimming pool. God saw fit to save her. I don't know whether it was because of our prayer or not. I expect there was probably some people who were praying like that for little Zachary. Again, I don't know whether God saved him because of your prayer or not. But we say in our vision statement here at this church that we want to live transform, transform lives for God's glory. God's glory. What does that mean? It's a little bit Christianese. It simply means this. We want God to get the credit. We want people to think more and better about God than they did before. And how will God get the glory unless it is obvious that it was him and not me? How will God get the glory unless it was obvious that it was only him who could have done anything? Are we bold enough? Are we bold enough to look back and look how God stepped in? and displayed his power. Noah built a boat in a desert and God stepped in. Joseph stood in front of the king of Egypt and said, I can't do it, but God can do it. And God stepped in. Elijah challenged 
whole bunch of false prophets. And he said, let's have a, let's have a God off. Let's have a contest, eh? And we'll see whose God can answer by fire. Man, imagine if, imagine if he'd, he'd been wrong. He staked his very life on God's ability to step in. You might have noticed that the church leadership has got faith goals for this calendar year. Why are they faith goals? Not just goals. Because they are there because, and because they will only happen if God steps in and acts. They are not actually within our power to achieve as a church leadership. What are those faith, faith goals? We want to see 10 people come to know Christ this year. 10. I know that some have already. Praise God. We want to see 10 people make a decision to be baptized this year. And we're asking God that he will help us to meet our financial commitments. We take those steps in faith. They are actually not outcomes that are in our hands. They're not outcomes that are in our hands. And can I just remind you, this is not about me putting up Joseph and saying, hey, look what Joseph did. Do what Joseph did. No. This is me putting up God and saying, look what God did. Look how God stepped in and intervened. It is the same God who did this for Joseph who will, I pray, help us. Help us. He will deliver those goals. In his timing, in his way, to the extent that he wants, he's still ready, willing and able to step in and prove himself. He actually wants the credit. He deserves the credit. If we go about achieving things that we say, look, yeah, we're, this was our strategic plan, this is how we did it, look, we'll lay it out for you, that's not God getting the credit. Can I give, give you just one small example? I think I've just got time for this. There's a guy who just joined my firm uh, at, at my workplace late last year. And he shared with me that he and his wife were struggling to fall pregnant and have a baby and that they were about to start uh, an IVF program. And he and his wife were really struggling with that. It's quite um, involved, pretty, pretty uh, well, it's not pleasant, um, the sort of things that have to go on and the tests and the rigmarole. And I was struggling with this as he shared it. I was thinking, how can I share God with this guy? How can I tell him about the God I believe in? And so just prior to Christmas, I wrote him and his wife a Christmas card. And I was pretty nervous about it because I put myself out there a little bit and I said to him, I hope you're not upset at Christmas time when everyone's talking about a baby and you haven't got one yet. And I wrote words something to this effect. I believe that God is the one who gave Jesus as a baby. And I hope that God gives you a baby this Christmas. Because I believe he can. And I just left it there. And I gave it to him in an envelope and he took it home and he opened it with his wife. And uh, they shed a few tears because it was quite sensitive for them. And then about two hours later they had a phone call from their doctor. They were pregnant. They found out the same day. I was nervous as all get out. I was so nervous about putting myself out there for this, just in this little way. But it reminds me of this song uh, that I was introduced to as a little kid and it was sung by a group of pretty 
geeky American 80s singers called the Cedarville Singers. Some of you might know of them. But the, the words of this song go like this. God uses people, God uses ordinary people. He uses people just like you and me who are willing to do as he commands. God uses people who will give him all, no matter how small your all may seem to you. Because little becomes much when you place it in the master's hands. Little Christmas card was a big testimony to these guys. And as I asked uh, this guy permission to share that today, he said, yeah, I'm not an atheist, but I've been really challenged to think about what, what God is and what he does. Little becomes much when you place it in the master's hands. Can I ask you a few questions as we contemplate these couple of things? Who are you holding a grudge against? Who has wronged you? What are you going to do if that person will not acknowledge their wrongdoing? You have to choose. Do I carry this? Am I going to reserve my right to hate them for the rest of my life? Or am I going to do something else? How are you going to, how are you going to prevent that thing from becoming bitterness in you? What can you ask God for that only he can do? Not like my prayer of, you know, God be with me today. What are you going to ask God for that invokes his power? What circumstances God, where is it that God is asking you to stake your future on his abilities? How small is your all? Sometimes we feel it's pretty small. Are you still willing to give it? What do you think God can do with it? Are you, are you shrinking God when you say, well, God can't do much with this? Lastly, a life of resolve glows in the dark. Listen to verse 38 when Pharaoh says, Well, how can, anyone, how can we find anyone like this man, Joseph, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Sounds like Pharaoh's become converted right there. Well, he hasn't. He doesn't acknowledge God as the one true God. In fact, the words might be better read, in one in whom is the spirit of the gods. He recognises that Joseph has some kind of power here that is given to him by God or the gods. It's a little bit, you can contrast it, I guess, to King Darius, who says, you know, I see that the God of Daniel is the true God. Everyone should worship that God. Pharaoh doesn't do that. But he recognises that Joseph has a connection to God. And he realises that you don't come across this kind of person every day. And so Joseph does the sensible thing and he promotes, sorry, Pharaoh does the sensible thing and he promotes Joseph way beyond his wildest, no, not beyond his wildest dreams. He promotes Joseph into that wild dream that he had. But what is Joseph going to do? How is he possibly going to administer the whole nation of Egypt? How is he going to go about that? He's completely inexperienced, is he not? No. He's not inexperienced at all. First of all, he's been equipped. In fact, we're told multiple times before now, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord gave him success in everything he did. It is actually God who is giving Joseph the ability of success in his ventures. And it doesn't mean that Joseph need not apply himself. What it means is the ultimate outcome is in God's hands and it is God who has given success so far and it is God, Joseph knows, who will give success in the future. 
Secondly, God has been preparing Joseph, the man. He's actually been training him. As a slave, he has learned how to serve. He has learned how to serve. And is that not now his role? He must serve the whole nation of Egypt as they prepare for some of the hardest times they've ever faced. As an administrator, Joseph learned how to organise. He's had this position before. He has been the 2IC before. He's not been dropped in the deep end. He has been prepared by God for this. In fact, as the head of Potiphar's household, he learnt how to deal with temptation. He learnt how to deal with the power that comes from being second only to the boss. And he will need to call on those lessons and be reminded of what he learned in that role to be able to handle the high office that he's just been given. Incredible power has just been placed in this guy's hands. Joseph was, in fact, a Christian politician. You ever thought about that? Joseph was a Christian politician. Have you ever wondered how hard it might be for our Christian politicians? What are the temptations for them? How strong must that push be to give in to the pressure of public opinion, to conform to the expectations of the party room. Guys, those people, those Christian politicians in our parliament, they need our prayers, not our criticism. They need our support. Very easy to find the fault and pull them down. They need our prayers and encouragement. Ever thought about this? You only know if a light is shining when it's in the dark. You only know if a light is shining when it's in the dark. I heard about a guy once who was into the heavy metal rock scene. He came to know Jesus and become a follower of Jesus and he did not leave that scene behind. Now you might think that is a bad mistake. You know what? He made a deliberate choice to go back into the dark and shine a light. When I heard his story... They were recounting at the time when he was uh, playing in a concert, hanging upside down in a cage, playing his bass guitar. Now, that sounds crazy to me. It's not the kind of behaviour I would expect as a Christian, but we need to change our mental norms of what a Christian looks like. A Christian does not look like shirt and collar, river shoes and cargo pants coming to church on a Sunday morning. That's just what we look like. God has people everywhere. By the way, if you want to take off your shoes, it's really nice, it's cool. God has people everywhere. And listen to some of the people who've gone into the dark to shine a light. Hudson Taylor, he bucked all the pressure of all the norms that were put on him. He dressed up like a Chinese person and went into China looking like the Chinese. He was shining a light in the dark. John Smith, he went and hung out with bikies. Man, he's a brave guy. He went into a dark place so that he could shine. I recently met a Christian guy who is starting a, a tattoo apprenticeship. Tattoo apprenticeship. Why? So he, he can go into those places and shine a light. He knows that tattoo parlours are full of darkness and people who desperately need to understand that there's hope in life. Jesus. Jesus hung around with prostitutes and tax cheats. People that you and I like to look down on and say, man, they need to sort out their mess. Jesus just went and hung around with them. Here's my simple attempt at an analogy, and you, I've told you this before. Analogies can never walk on all fours. They're limited, but here's the analogy. I don't know 
if you've ever got glow-in-the-dark stuff, my, the, watch, uh, the hands on my watch are glow-in-the-dark, okay? And I can only see them glowing when it's dark. When you and I come together like this, we're not glowing right here. This is not us glowing in the dark. This is us coming together and, ironically, we're sitting our glow-in-the-dark stuff under the fluoros. Have you done that? Get your glow-in-the-dark thing and just stick it under the lamp and it sort of seems to soak up a whole lot of light energy and then you go into your toilet or close the door and you don't turn the light on and, wow, it glows really bright. That's what we're doing right here. This is not the play. This is the team meeting. This is not glowing. This is us coming under the fluoro and soaking up the light. We are here to encourage each other so that we go out and glow. I have to remind myself about that sometimes. Sometimes I think, you know, oh, I'm serving Jesus so well, I play the bass guitar on a Sunday morning. Actually, that's me just encouraging you. That's me just helping you to bask in the fluoro light, to soak up a bit more of it so that we both can go out and glow in the dark. This is not where we glow. This is not where we glow. Read John 17 if you don't believe me. John 17, Jesus' prayer for us. He doesn't say, I pray that you'd give them great worship every Sunday. Pray that they'd really enjoy their fellowship lunches. He actually sends his people out into the world. He distinguishes between their fellowship and what they do when they're not together in fellowship. And he says, I'm sending them out. Not comfortable, not basking in worship. He's sending us to glow in the dark. I've talked about that. The baker and the cupbearer's dreams have come true. Pharaoh's dreams are now coming true. But what about Joseph's dreams? What about those dreams he had way back at the start that he foolishly told his brothers about? What about the whole bowing down of sheaves and sun and moon and 11 stars and all that stuff? Well, I'll tell you about it next week. In the meantime, can I ask us these questions? Where is a place... It might not be the only, but where is a place where you can glow in the dark? What steps of obedience do you need to take in order to go into the dark? I was asked the other night to make a list of 10 non-Christian people that I can pray for opportunities to share the gospel. 10. I struggled. I have a feeling I might be in a holy huddle not spending much time in the dark. Who can you encourage as they seek to glow in the dark? Rather than pick on them and tell them, oh, you shouldn't be hanging around with people with tattoos. Who can you encourage to say, hey, that must be a dark place. I'm going to pray that you really shine there. I really hope that people will see in the dark the glow of Jesus What can you do to encourage those people? I'm sure you can think of one or two. Do others see the spirit of God in you glowing? If they can't, is it because I'm a DIY Christian? Am I doing DIY or am I invoking God's power to say, God, only you will shine 
not me. What dreams and ambitions do you need to place into God's hands? Joseph still has not seen what is going to become of his dreams, those dreams that happened so, so many years. It's about 13, well, now that at the end of the for at the end of the seven years of famine, we're now about 20 years, thereabouts. 20 years since he had those dreams about people bowing down to him. He's not trying to pursue it. He's not clamouring for position of power. He's not looking for people to bow down to him. What steps can you take to stop chasing the dreams that you have and let God bring them about?